You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Who thinks the first one is the formal equivalent, more word for word? Good. And who thinks the second one is more thought for thought? Yeah. So you guys can see the first one is kind of weird, like the grammar is kind of strange and it's a little bit backwards the way they're saying it. And the second one is much more readable, right? So here's, I'll give you one more. Here's another one. This is New Testament. What do you guys think? So who thinks the first one is a formal equivalent? And who thinks the second one is formal equivalent? So it's the first one, again. It's more formal equivalent. If you see there's less sentences, there's less periods in the first one. Uh, Paul doesn't tend to go for punctuation. <laughs> so if he has no punctuation, you're going to be closer to what Paul, the way Paul spoke and thought and taught. And uh, so that, that's what makes it hard to read, actually, because we're used to punctuation. And um, so I suggest reading, if you're reading for study, trying to read a couple different versions. And again, trying to choose one from the um, dynamic equivalent column and one from the formal equivalent column. And so when someone asks, why are there so many translations? That's a question I've had asked from a person who's not a person of faith. Like, they think that shows there's something wrong if there's so many translations. The reason there are so many translations, there are a couple of reasons. One is that we're finding new manuscripts all the time. So we make, so the NIV 2011 is better than the NIV 1984 because the NIV 2011 includes, you know, 100 manuscripts that they didn't even have in 1984. So it's more accurate to the original. That's one reason we have new. Also, the English language changes. So things that you would just say in 1984, you don't say anymore. I mean, inclusive language was also almost not used in 1984. Now it's used. So you would call, um, you know, if you're talking about, you know, the the men of Canada, you know, I don't know, a man, the men of Canada, that would seem normal. Now we would say men and women in Canada or whatever. We'd include women. Whereas before, a man was considered inclusive of women. Now it's not. So there's, so there's changes in the language, um, and there's also more manuscripts. So that's why we have new. So like the King James English, of course, we don't speak like that anymore. So we read King James, and that's not the language of the common people anymore. It's, it, it was the language of the common people in King James' day. And, um, and again, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, there was some more, cha- there was some more, you know, particulars. And you'll see in your notes. Sometimes, if you look at your Bible, there's little notes. You know, other manus- other MSS say this, or Dead Sea Scrolls found this. So they'll, they'll also in newer versions include some places where they're not quite sure. They'll give you little notes in the margin so you know. But before those manuscripts were found, we didn't know that. Okay, so that's. Ending that section of translation. And 
Okay, Mo, so I'll just say one more thing. Again, in challenges in translation are the words, the punctuation, grammatical problems. Those are some things that are trans challenges to translators that they have to deal with. And that's how we have new translations. Okay, then the final area we want to cover, and we're moving, I better move really quickly, is, uh, is how does God speak through the Bible? What makes the Bible inspired? And what does that mean that the Bible is inspired? So we're going to talk about um, a couple different ways, but I'm going to start with theories of inspiration. There was one man asking me about that um, in the back. So what we've proved to you to this point is that the Bible was formed by the Christian community believing it was inspired, that the Bible we have today is very accurate compared to the Bible back in the day when it was written. But now, how do we how do we treat it? How do we use it? How do we know it's inspired? Is the next question. So we believe that as Christians, we believe that the Bible is revelation. That the Bible shows us who God is. That God actually speaks through the Scriptures. And so many people have discussed back and forth. Uh, so Second um, Timothy three sixteen talks about that. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for training, rebuking, correcting, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And God-breathed or inspired means, is the Greek word is theonoustos, God is theonoustos is breathed. So it came from God. And God uses it in our lives. But there's a very big range of how people think God has spoken through Scripture. And so I'm going to give you some of the main theories and then talk a little bit more about probably the evangelical theory of inspiration. So some people see the Bible as the work of great inspiring writers. So it's inspired because it inspires us. But they don't necessarily see that inspiration coming from God just because it's a really great book. Some, some see it, so call it a witness of divine revelation. So if we talk about this, it tells you about like the Exodus, and God showed himself in the Exodus, the Bible writes about the Exodus, so the Bible shows us divine uh, revelation. But the Bible itself is not divine revelation. So that makes sense? It points to divine revelation. Someone like Bart said that the Bible um, becomes... A revelation through the work of the Spirit. So if you're a believer, you have the Spirit, you read the Bible, God speaks in a unique way through the Spirit and the Bible when they come together. Um, and But Bart is concerned more about, um, he believes more in the illumination and that he's not so interested in the original manuscripts as much as what God says to us when we read it. So, then Octemeyer put forth this, that there's, there's a a spiritual element and a human element. And the spirit is at work in the whole of the composition, not just in the original autograph. So God also was in the process of the, the manuscripts and the writing of the manuscripts. And so he, Akhtamara, wouldn't be so worried about textual criticism because he would see God moving through the whole thing. And then finally, the, the, the activity of God was working through the whole. There's a natural part and a supernatural part. Um, that God was working through humans, but also through his spirit as the Bible was formed. And that would be, the last one is the evangelical definition, more the evangelical definition of inspiration. And B.B. Warfield, a famous uh, scholar, um, 
in Christian tradition, wrote this, Inspiration is therefore usually defined as supernatural influence exerted on the sacred writers by the Spirit of God, by virtue of which their writings are given divine trustworthiness. So God, working through humans, produces the Bible, which is trustworthy and is inspired. So, how is God active in the writing of the Bible? And so, there is, there's, um, first of all, um, there was a, um, a, so how do I want to put it? There was a divine element in the production of the scriptures, and there was a human element. Now, this dictation theory is what we do not believe. So, I'm putting down the dictation theory just so you know what it's not. So, the dictation theory is, I'm sitting, I know I'm the Apostle Paul, and I'm sitting and writing, and I don't even, it doesn't even really go into my head, it just kind of goes into my hand. God tells me what to write, and I write it down. That's not what we believe when we say inspiration. Okay, we believe that the Apostle Paul was thinking about what he was going to write, and God inspired him. So there's a combination, there's a human element as well as a divine element in inspiration. And that the scripture, is, and in some ways that's like Jesus, right? Jesus was both human and divine, and so are the scriptures. They have the human element and the divine element. And, and that inspiration comes through that. So this is the, the definition we would see. It's called verbal, verbal plenary inspiration. So God superintendents of human authors of scriptures, so the, using their own individual personalities, they composed and recorded without error his revelation to man, and that was, this is an old definition, in the words of the original autographs. So the Apostle Paul was thinking about what to write, God was influencing him, and he wrote down what God wanted him to write, but he used his own personality, his own grammar, his own ways of forming thoughts to do that. Okay. So inspiration means this. It means that the Bible is trustworthy. We can trust it because God was involved in the process. That it makes no false or misleading statements on any matters in faith or practice. So that it's what it teaches about who God is, how you are to live your life as a follower of God is true. Doesn't make any mistakes in that. That true, the truth is expressed in concepts and understandings from the period that they wrote. So, for instance, um, the Bible, when the Bible talks about um, cosmology, the way that heavens and earth are set up, the Old Testament, it will use the way that the ancient Near East thought about the universe. So, it talks about the canopy of the heavens. And that was a concept that, you know, you look up, you see the blue sky, you think there's a canopy up there holding the waters back. So it will use the language and the concepts of the ancient Near East to describe the world, to describe God. So God doesn't superintend and tell, you know, them about DNA. You know, that was that, there's nothing about DNA in the Bible because nobody knew about DNA back in the ancient Near East. So it, it tells the story through the way the people of the time viewed the world. Um, so truth is expressed from the viewpoint of the observer and not from a modern scientific understanding. So in Joshua 10, 12, whatever, when the, which one is that? Yeah, um, I think it's not where the sun stands still. Yeah, sun and the moon. 
So back in the Middle Ages, there'd be all these fights. You know, if the world's flat, it's the world round, and they would go to the Bible and try and prove their point. The Bible doesn't, doesn't try and present stuff from an understanding of the modern world. It's from the ancient world, and the way the ancients saw things. So it's history with a point of view, and its purpose was to tell the story. So think about a newspaper article. When you read an editorial in a newspaper, right away you know that it's the editor's point of view, right? He's telling the truth, but he's telling it from his point of view. That's what the Bible is. It's, it's history with a point of view. The point of view of God and God's people. So it's going to mention things that they think are important to tell and leave out things that they don't think are important to tell. So it's not um, an objective observer writing down the events. It has this human fingerprint um, that's in the Bible. And, um, and the concept of error in the Bible, just so you know, isn't, is having a wrong theological view or a moral wrong view. It's not, um, oh wow, there is this number in this passage and then there's a different number in this passage, therefore the Bible's wrong. The error we're talking about is a theological or moral error. So there are grammatical errors in the Bible because the people who are writing had different abilities in grammar, right? So they might have used bad grammar. That doesn't make it not true. If that's not what we're talking about when we talk about error. And so we need to take the whole of Scripture seriously as the whole word of God. And, and again, it's history with a point of view. So Packer wrote this in his book, The Origin of the Bible. Inspiration establishes that the Bible is a divine product. In other words, scripture is divinely inspired in that God actively worked through the process and had his hand in the outcome of what scripture would say. Inspired scripture is simply written revelation. Scripture is not only a human's word, but also an equally God's word spoken through a human's lips or written with a human's pen. Okay. So, and again, when we, when we, and I'll talk a little bit more about interpretation later, but I want to say this, we interpret scripture not in our own, but as a community. It's not like you go and you read it and you decide what it means, but we have to look at inspiration, David's going to talk about this more, as part of the community of faith. So one time I went to this seminar, and this woman in the seminar said, um, you know, I've been reading uh, Jesus, um, and I believe there are actually two different kinds of baptisms. And she said, you know, you guys all think there should be one baptism, but I've been reading my scripture, and there's actually a water baptism and a fire baptism. No, you'll re- you know, you can read about the history of scripture. No one else has ever seen this, but I've seen that there are actually two baptisms. And so right away I knew, hmm, (laughs) if you have a whole new interpretation that no one in the rest of history has ever had, you're probably wrong. So I want to say that. So so even though it's inspired, it's going to be inspired again and interpreted correctly through the community. Okay, so this is what I'm going to say about that. Is is this your quote or my quote? I couldn't tell. Yeah, F.F. Ruiz said this, the plenary sense of scripture consists in its primary meaning plus whatever further meaning have been validly discerned in it by the people of God in succeeding generations. The plenary, and that means plain, interpretation of scripture in the church, it has been said, accrues like compound interest. 
There must be a secure relationship between the compound interest and the primary deposit. And so we interpret scripture, again, through our communities, through what the church has said about it, but we can't make up new meanings into it. Okay, so what we're doing is uh, we want to get through because uh, you may have a couple questions that have come out of this. Yeah. <laughs> so we want to cover this market for what we can. Okay, so and that, that last quote by F.F. Bruce is a great place to jump into this because we're talking about how God speaks through the Bible. We talk about spoken by God, um, theories of inspiration, spoken to the church. Now this is important because As, as Marty was saying, whenever you find somebody who comes up with their unique understanding of who Jesus is, apart from the historical continuity of the church, that should certainly raise a yellow flag, if not a red flag. And so if Deepak Chopra writes a book that you can find at chapters, Jesus, and, and talk about the, the new way of Jesus, and Jesus as interpreted through Deepak Chopra's understanding of Jesus, which interestingly enough, is a Gnostic understanding of Jesus. Um, you, you can be suspicious. And, and that doesn't need to, to, to throw you off because as F.F. F. Bruce said, I love that quote. That's a great quote. because it's, 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 um, Our understanding of, of, of Scripture and the revelation of, of Jesus Christ, God's work in history, the Christ event, the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the descent of the dove, the Holy Spirit into the people of God, all of this played out over 2,000 years of history just only serves to solidify and deepen what is being revealed by God. So it's very important. So whenever, if you look in church history, whenever you find someone who has a unique idea about the Jesus, a unique idea about God, you can be sure that what's going to emerge out of this is a Jesus and theology. It's Jesus and the Book of Mormon. Or it's Jesus and... Fill it in, right? And whenever you get a Jesus and, it's always the and that will subsume Jesus. Jesus will always play second fiddle to whatever comes after. Jesus and the watchtower. Right? So you need to be aware of that. And the reason why this is an issue is, is what happens is whenever we as individuals on our own apart from the community of faith, try to determine truths and realities about God, we can go off the rails. And historically, that's been the case. Uh, Charles Taze Russell, and the founder of uh, Jehovah's Witness, same thing. He wanted to translate the Bible his own way. The only problem <coughs> is, is he did not know Greek. <laughs> Very important. He did not know Greek. Joseph Smith, founder of Mormonism. Same thing. Um, the revelation that he claimed he saw that he could not produce produced a book that takes, in many ways, precedence over Scripture. But often you hear people today saying, you know, I believe in Jesus, I like Jesus, me and Jesus, but I'm not too keen about the church. That's, that, that's, that's a problem. And only in our modern context do we ever have that option. Historically, it's always we approach the Bible within the context of the church as the people of God. 
So the question is then, what does it mean to be a biblical community? You hear a lot of churches, we're a Bible-believing church, we're a biblical community. What does that mean? What does it mean for Coquitlam Alliance Church to be a biblical community? Um, Because you can go off all the rails uh, if, if, if you get this wrong. Now, there are divisions between churches. I know it comes as a surprise to you, but there are divisions between churches over uh, interpretation of doctrine, practices, and theological conclusions. And, um, you know, you look at any church in, uh, in Coquitlam, and there's going to be divisions between churches over different issues. So, what do we talk about when we talk about the church and God speaking to the church, especially when in the 20th century there's a formation of 20,000 new denominations? You know that? Over the course of one century, 20,000 new denominations were formed. So what does it mean when we're talking about the church? Which church? Which denomination? Well, this is, here's some ways forward in this. John Wesley, 18th century um, thinker, writer, evangelist, um, pastor, talks about the importance of inessentials unity and non-essentials liberty in all things charity. And then there's this great concept from the 5th century. And it talks about what Christians believe, what the church believes. And, and it refers to it as this. What has been, been believed by everyone, everywhere, at all times? So what... There, there, there's two approaches that we can, we can take in this. We can, we can look at, okay, what are the boundaries of the Christian faith? What are the boundaries? Okay, these are the boundaries. So baptism has to be by immersion. Oh, you're sprinkling by baptism? You're out. All right? Or I believe, you know, Jesus, his return is going to be pre-millennial. You're a post-millennial? You're, you, I once said I'm a pan-millennial. I said it'll all pan out in the end. But, so, who's in and who's out? What are the, what are the boundaries that determines... Okay, who's on the inside, who's on the outside? And Christians, we know we're really good at, at boundaries. We're really good at saying who's in and who's out, aren't we? And I'm wondering if that's in a very effective thing, uh, way about this. I wonder if, if a better way to look at it is to look at core. What are the core beliefs as a church? What do we believe? Because beliefs matter, but not all beliefs matter equally. And Pastor Mark often says this. You know, If you want to talk about you know, whether or not... I had one lady come up to me once and said, I can't help but notice, but in communion, you're using leavened bread. It should be unleavened bread. And I'm like, okay, but it's not a big deal. Well, I'm going to talk to Pastor Mark. I said, you can, but you'll probably get the same answer from Pastor Mark. And which she did. And she, uh, yeah, she left. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, we're not going to fight over that as a church. We don't have to fight over that. Now, it doesn't mean you don't have a view, and the, the view is important. Now, if you come up to me and say, I don't think the book of Romans should be in the Bible, or I don't think that Jesus really died, or I don't believe that Jesus really was raised from the dead, well, maybe those are, <laughs> not maybe, they are core beliefs that we will fight over, because they are fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. So, but we have to determine what is at the core. What are the key truths at the core of our faith? As one guy of... Paul Boudna, a friend of mine, a guy I knew years ago, um, he talked, what are the big T truths and what are the small T truths? The big T truths we need to hold on to. Small T truths, we can disagree, but we can still still do life together, still uh, be brothers and sisters together. I think um, one of the ways forward in here is uh, what we see 
it's, it's called a, it's a different name, but one of the names is a Wesleyan quadra, quadrilateral. And it talks about the faith that we see written in, in the book of Jude, Jude 3. What is, constitutes the faith? Scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. This is very important. Scripture, from a Christian perspective, throughout history, has always been primary. Martin Luther says, the Bible is a cradle that holds the Christ. Roger Olson said, the Bible is a norming norm, a most important source for determining right beliefs in all matters of Christian faith and practice. So, the Bible is absolutely central. And so we believe, uh, we truly believe as Christians, and Christians throughout history have believed that Scripture is the ultimate source and norm for faith and practice. And that's why we need to know the entire Bible. That's why the courses like this are really important. And to spend a sunny day here is very important because we need to know the Word of God. The entire Word of God. The whole counsel of God. And and where we go off the rails, and as much as, you know, remember a number of years ago the book of, uh, the prayer of Jabez came out? Fine, good book and all that. But what happens is when we take a little snippet and we say, ah, this this is the core. This is what it's all about. And we take it out of context, we run into trouble. We need to understand the Bible from beginning to end. We need to know the story and understand our place within the story, within what God has revealed in history. Okay? So you and I need to be men and women of the book. We need to know the whole counsel of God. Okay? So scripture, that's why I put scripture on the quadrilateral in, in, in larger print, because that is that is our starting point. But having said that. Scripture has been lived out, how we have been Christians has been lived out for 2,000 years. And we cannot, and that's why I'm a constantly go on about church history. We need to understand how the Christian life has lived, been lived out for 2,000 years. We can't ignore this. Because there's a lot of people way smarter than ourselves who have been wrestling over a lot of these tough questions. Many of the questions um, that we've looked at today, you know, in terms of God's foreknowledge and God's activity in history. I mean, there's people that have been writing lots of stuff on this over church history that we need to access, we need to be aware of. And tradition can be seen as a map or a compass to help us understand scripture. Again, it's centered on the understanding of the person, work, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it means. I am a Christian. I'm not a theist, a deist. I am a Christ follower. Jesus, who he is, what he did, and what this means and how it's being lived out for 2,000 years is the center of how I understand the Christian life. It's very important. And so our, our, a lot of our, our, our basic common beliefs in history are understood, are taken from the early church fathers. These are the guys that I was referring to early on. And they're the ones that are trying to wrestle through this stuff in the midst of a very difficult environment with uh, 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 threats of heresy, threats of Montanism, you know, what, what scripture's in, what scripture's out, intellectual challenges. So we need to look to these guys. Um, the re- rediscovery of the doctrine of grace by the reformers of the 16th century. Luther had a, Luther, guys like Zwingli, uh, Butcher, Cranmer, Menno Simon, John Calvin. They can speak into our understanding of what it means to read the, read the scripture as a church. Again, it's never neat and tidy. It's, it's, it's carried out in history. And, and believe it or not, the church has made some mistakes in church history. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, but if you know church history and you read through church history, you'll see how God time and again renews his church. 
and what remains consistent throughout church history. And those are the things we need to look at. Okay? So we look at the scripture's primary, scripture as lived out through 2,000 years of church history. That helps us. And we use reason. God has given us a mind. We need to read scripture intelligently. So when you're like, um, you know, I don't know where I should go and spend vacation. And you flip a Bible, it's like, Jerusalem! Oh, oh, God must want me to go to Jerusalem. And uh, I wonder who I should marry. Esther! She's in my class. I should, you know, we need to use our brain, right? And so reason helps us to read Scripture intelligently. And we stand under the Word of God, not over it. I like what um, Lady Pascal says. The heart has reasons that reason does not know, but we still need to use reason. Scripture offers us the most comprehensive foundation and explanation, I believe, of all of, of, of key issues. Why are we here? This is what Marty was saying earlier. The, the reality and the presence of evil, the nature of evil, uh, philosophy, how we know, how we can know things, science. It's very important, and this is where church history comes in, 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 into play. A lot of people talk about faith and science as if they're enemies, that they're always at, at, at loggerheads with each other. But the very basis for our modern understanding of science, the scientific method, the very foundation of that is given by Christianity. Because Christianity says this, that the God of the universe created all things orderly and knowable, that the world is knowable. It can be investigated and understood. That is the basis for the scientific method. So the very basis of science is a Christian worldview of the world. So that helps us. Theology used to be called the queen of sciences. But reason in itself is not sufficient on its own to reach God. You've heard the story of the two French philosopher and a Christian debating over the resurrection of Jesus Christ and they debate all night long and in the morning the French philosopher said you've done it, you've convinced me on the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ I now believe that Jesus rose from the dead but so what? didn't care because this has to get to here as well alright so we look at scripture's primary it's lived out through 2000 years of church history we need to know that Reason plays into in, in, uh, reason is, is important. And one of the be- one of the um, things that I'm quite excited about in the last twenty or thirty years is Protestants and especially evangelicals. Now, when I say the word evangelical, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Evangelistic means reaching out. Okay, we often get those two words. Evangelicalism is a movement that began roughly in the late 17th century, early 18th century. And it's defined by, it's, it's a Christian movement, it's a spirituality that has four emphases. One is, evangelicals believe that the Bible is the word of God. They believe that the cross is at the center of all history. They believe that every person needs to come to a, convert, uh, to a place in their own life where they submit to Jesus. And they believe that the news is so good it needs to be sent to the world. So evangelism. That's when I, often you hear in the media the word evangelical, but... The media has no clue what evangelical means. That's what it means. It's a spirituality that has its roots in history. So one of the things I'm excited about evangelicals in the last 20 years is there is a growing um, body of, uh, of scholarship that that is really applying the Christian life into the areas of science and theology and questions of evil and existence. So that's quite good. And the last thing is experience. The Christian faith is not just a set of philosophical ideas. It's a lived-out encounter with the living God of the universe. 
And so it's part of our desire is out of this class that this deepens your love and affection for Jesus. That you know how much he loves you and that you love... What Augustine says, he says the whole purpose of the Christian life is to know how much God loves us and to become lovers of God. And so our desire is that this isn't just, oh, well, that was just great information, but it really reaches your heart and, and, and our response is worship, right? Because it, it's a lived experience with God. That's, that's what the Christian life is all about. So a biblical community, so when we're talking about being a biblical community, a biblical community is this, is a, is a church that gives primary, uh, gives primacy and authority to the story, that is, to Scripture and its author, the living God sees its story as part of a bigger story being played out in church history. The Coquitlam Alliance Church, that we are part of a stream that has run for 2,000 years. We're part of a grand tradition. Gives value to the mind, contemplation, and theological reflection, and gives value to a lived-out faith and the importance of the heart. Okay? So I'm going to pass things over to Marty, and she has five minutes and that leaves us 10 minutes for questions, okay? So here we go. So five minutes on biblical interpretation. Sure, you can do it. <laughs> anyone can do it, it's you. So I had some stories and more interesting things, but I'll have to leave them up. And so um, when David did his little, like, how do, you, how do you interpret the Bible? And he did his little, you know, you point, where should I go on a trip, Jerusalem? Obviously, that's not the right way to interpret or use the Bible. And so how do you do that well? And so, first of all, we need to read the Bible in its context, in the context of history. So, for instance, when you're reading about uh, the Old Testament cultic laws, you have to actually know what was going on in the ancient Near East at that time in order to understand why the Israelites have certain laws that they have. If you read the Proverbs, you need to understand that those are wise sayings from Egypt and all different places. They're not promises, they're actually... Uh, wise sayings, and they—it means this is usually true. That's what a proverb is. Okay. Secondly, the geography again. You need to understand the, where where it happened and what place. What was the climate? For instance, the story of uh, the Garden of Eden. That was a story of, of a bounty in the midst of a dry and arid land. Why was that? You know, why was that in some senses paradise? Because it was there was water and there was plants and trees, and and that was a story given to people in a very arid place. Literary traditions, uh, again, how, um, how to read it. So once upon a time, you need to understand that that's a fairy tale and what that means. You need to build it. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about the literary aspect of that. And finally, cultural traditions. Uh, you need to understand how the culture worked and how things went. For instance, when you're reading Ephesians 5, and it tells you that wives submit to your husbands as, and, as husbands, you know, as and husbands loves your wives as Christ loves the church. You need to understand the cultural marriage practices of that time to figure out what Paul is really saying in that passage. And if you don't understand what was happening in Ephesus at that time, you will not understand what Paul was trying to say. So those are cultural traditions. So again, you need to understand the literary traditions. That's incredibly important. Poetry is poetry. Poetry uses elevated language and speech. It doesn't mean, as I said, God rides on the wings of the wind, that he's got this little car riding up there. And I was going to, if we had time, get you to read a piece of poetry as if it was a cookbook, and some cookbooks is a piece of poetry, and that would be ridiculous. 
And again, you need to understand what is this? If, if this is poetry, is it a figure of speech? Is it um, prophecy? What kind of literature is it? And you need to read it that way. Um, for instance, in Hebrew poetry, um, it uses what we call parallelism. And so that is a saying that goes A, and what's more, B. So the first line of Hebrew poetry will make a statement, and the second line will add to that statement. It will tell you a little. So, it, so in the you know, if you don't know about Hebrew poetry, you're going to think they're two totally unrelated things. For instance, in um, yeah, let me use this as an example. In Psalm 1037, um, it it says, "He made his way, he made known his way to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel." So a he made known his ways to Israel, to Moses, and what's more, B, to the people of Israel. But if you didn't know about parallelism, some people have interpreted it that way, that God treated Moses in a different way than he treated the people of Israel. But actually, it's, it's a rhyme of ideas. That's how Hebrew poetry works. It rhymes ideas. And so when you're reading the Psalms, take a look at that and see how the two ideas are correlating. And don't try and interpret them as two totally different ideas. They're trying to add the same thought in Hebrew poetry. So that's one way to read poetry. There's, again, figures of speech. We need to recognize them as that and not take a figure of speech as literal. God is like a rock. Of course, God is not a rock. We know that. That's a figure of speech, right? What about God is like a rock? You know, so that, that's in the Old and New Testament. Again, prophecy, you need to be able to recognize that and understand what prophecy is about and apocalyptic literature, again, much, especially in the early part of the 20th century, Revelation was interpreted in so many crazy ways because people didn't understand apocalyptic literature. And so you had to read, you have to be able to read the apocalyptic literature of the time and understand what format John was speaking in to be able to inter interpret properly the book of Revelation. Um, okay, so I'm going to just give... How much do I have? How many minutes do I have now? Thirty seconds. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> Okay. I mean, I, there was another story I was going to tell you. There's a sect, a Pentecostal sect, that that takes Mark. Um, uh, where is it? Mark 16, 17, and 18 literally. That we should be able to pick up scorp uh, snakes, and they should be able to bite us, and we'll live. And so, actually, as part of their church service practice. They have um, venomous snakes up front, and when people are in worship, they go up and they pick up the snakes, and obviously people have died from that practice, right? But that's how they interpret the scripture, and they interpret it literally, but they don't understand the that's content. It's a disputed scripture, though, in most It is a disputed scripture, but again, they're misinterpreting what was being said there. So... It's very important that you understand how to interpret scripture. So this is what I'm going to say the most because it's it's a whole study. I mean, I did my master's in it, so did David. So if you don't understand how to interpret it, definitely depend on commentaries, good commentaries. Ask your pastor, your friends who have theological education. If you come up with a whole new interpretation of something, um, you're going to be, you, you know you're wrong. So that would be what I'd say. Um, but but um, Hebrew poetry, for instance, again, you can you can go online and read about Hebrew poetry and find out more about parallelism if you're interested. There's a lot of materials that are very accessible now that there's an internet to be able to look at. So, I mean, obviously you want to look at a good website. So, do you think Bible.org has got some good stuff? Yeah, good. yeah Bible.org does, and 
Um, there's lots of online commentaries that are good um, that you can look at that help you as you read. So, so then I end with this last quote. The Bible was not intended to be a book of riddles. Each part of it was meant to be understood by the people for whom in, in the first instance it was written. And so, again, it wasn't written to trick us, but because we're separated from the people who it was written to by two or three centuries, it's going to be a little harder for us to understand it than it was for them. That's why we need to pay attention to inspiration. Now, just, just one, one important point, and I'm sure this is very important, that what we just laid out there is, is for to help you to read the Bible for all it's worth. Okay? It, 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 it's very important. I hope that what you hear is not uh, in any way intimidating you from reading the Bible. Because God in His grace will, you know, we, we can read, anyone can read the Bible and, 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 and get the heart of the Gospel out of the Bible. And so you have people throughout church history throughout history, even today, um, with, with very low education, able to grasp the, 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 the nuggets, the core truths of the gospel message. And, and when you're reading scripture, that's not to say that God won't take a, a passage that you read and speak into your heart in a way that's very meaningful and intersects with, with your life at this particular period of time. Where you run into difficulty is where you take what God is basically saying to you and turn around and say, hey, this, is, this applies to everybody. Right? Because God does sometimes speak to us individually as we're reading through his word. Well, he does speak to us individually as we're reading his word. And so we need to differentiate between what is for me, what God is maybe speaking to me through this passage, and what is, um, what is universally true. Okay? And so th- th- this is a question. Well, Can you use like the three-legged stool tomorrow? Well, I, I do. I mean, you, God is so gracious that He can take a passage and apply it into our lives that is actually out of context. He can, but you. But in the end, a wise person would share this unique yeah. um, inspiration that they have with some, some trusted Christian friends, as well as part of the discernment. Yeah, and that's and that's the importance of being in community. So you bounce off ideas. So when you think you're going to marry the girl named Esther because you did a Bible flip and it says Esther, you may want to hear from friends. But I guess my, my point is, is I don't want you to be intimidated to think, oh, you know, i got to go through all these commentaries and do, understand Hebrew poetry before I'm even ready to open up my Bible. No, I mean, yeah. people read. Yeah. God, God in his grace speaks through his word. Okay, so we have, oh, five minutes to, uh, to, to field some questions. You guys have been so good. All day. This has been awesome. Jacob, question. <laughs> Surprise. Um, Such a quiet guy back there. Uh, I was just wondering, like we said that um, out of the 6,000 manuscripts we have, 98% of them are agreeable. So I was just wondering, what's the stat for other historic documents that we, uh, or other manuscripts that we consider to be historic, like Homer Gilead? Well, I, I, the, the gap, the, the time period. Well, one, there's fewer manuscripts, and secondly, the time period between um, the event and the manuscripts is much greater. I mean, we have manuscripts available within basically a generation of the time of the apostles, which I don't think there's any other historical document that has that. 
So that is huge. Where I think, um, what is it, Caesar's War? Oh, man. This going to go on recording and I can get it wrong. Something to do with Julius Caesar. Um, the actual event from the time of the, uh, the, um, the manuscript describing the event, there's like six, seven hundred years. So the, the, the Bible, the, the timeline between the event and the manuscripts is very, very close. And then you add to that just a, the, the enormous number of manuscripts that's huge. Heather. And again, I'd say like David, there's so, most of the scriptures are pretty clear, so I want to say that. But if there are passages that are hard to interpret, where maybe you'll see one church interpret it one way, one church interpret another, those are the passages where I think probably cultural and historical background are helpful. So if the interpretation is disputed, so for instance, if you're reading the you know accounts of the death and resurrection of Jesus. There's not going to be a lot of dispute about that. So again, you're pro- you know, it might help to hear the cultural history. It makes you understand what was going on in the Roman Empire at the time. Uh, but if it's a more disputed passage, um, then I think it's even more essential to have the cultural background. And then I would say yes. Again, to me, and maybe what David's talking about, to be personally inspired by the scriptures is different than interpreting the mm-hmm. scriptures. And so the more you are interpreting, you need the background. But you can be personally inspired by something and not have the background. Probably that's how I just yeah. it. And, and, and commentators are a real gift to the church. And, and people don't realize that, but you have people who have been commentating on scripture and they have certain spiritual gifts in terms of understanding uh, the context and in, in, in laying out what scripture is saying within that context. And it's all available for us. And we can just uh, you know access these, these, these commentaries and they really... Feed. Like when I prepare a sermon... I'll always consult a commentary. Uh, say, a, any any pastor that would preach would, would at some point or another check a com- at least one commentary, usually about ten commentaries, to see what other people say about that particular passage to give you a, you know, a fuller understanding. And sometimes it's the difference between watch, no, I'm going to date myself, watching something in black and white, which TVs used to be in, uh, and watching something in color. Same kind of event, but you know the color actually helps. Or maybe to make it modern terms, color and 3D. There we go. Yeah, yeah I'm being so <laughs> contextual. Hey, just to yeah. follow up, a good study Bible is pretty awesome because it gives you, um, they'll break it down the bottom of scripture, they'll give you history, they'll give you background, uh, they'll show you maps. And I know we didn't talk much about study Bibles, but they're yeah. an awesome tool, especially for a new believer, an old believer. Well, two points to follow on that. One, if you go online on our church website, you'll see under resources, reading for life. And in that, I'll lay out some commentaries and and, um, study Bibles, which ones uh, I would recommend. The the, the best study Bible on the market right now, in terms of, uh, you may not like the translation, but the best study Bible is the ESV study Bible that was done three years ago. It, it compare, and I have the NIV study Bible I've, I've, but the ESV study Bible the, the support material in that is just outstanding like it really is 
Yeah, it's not very hard now to find a lot of information about cultural background. I mean, if you're a, li- a library member, you can go on and log in through your library to online resources and get tons of scholarly articles on the Bible if you're looking at a certain passage. Yeah, the danger now is that there's so many, you know, ever since the internet, anybody with their own interpretation is going to throw it out there. So you need to you be know. discriminating. Yeah. And so if you have a question about commentaries, um, feel free to email Marty or email myself. <laughs> uh, when I was at Regent, one of the things we had, we had a little cheat sheet on the best commentaries for different books in the Bible that the professors put together for us. Did you put that on the site? Did you put that on our website? I can try to. I have to find it and then scan it and, and all that, yeah. Daryl. Second Samuel 10.18. David killed 700 chariots, and then in um, that Second Samuel, then in First Chronicles 19:18 says he killed 7,000. Every translation I looked at says the same thing. Why hasn't it been corrected? And should I become a scribe now so I can correct it? <laughs> <laughs> you would add too much, Joe. No, but every translation is the same. I mean, ESV, NIV, NSV. I mean, they're all not some. Second Samuel ten eighteen and the first Chronicles nineteen eighteen. It's the same story. Yeah. It's the same battle that David fought the Assyrians. Do you want to speak to about the numbers? I mean in, in the Old Testament the numbers are, are, are difficult. Even if you look at the, the, the populations in the book of Numbers, there's there's scholarly debate in terms of you know, were there really, you know, essentially two million people coming in, in the Exodus or is that uh, a different number? Um, Numbers are just in the Old Testament. You just numbers are hard. Yes. Yeah. Are they truly relevant? Yeah, and, and yeah, even uh, the, the number. Uh, and, and number is also very symbolic all throughout Scripture, and so yeah. it's, it's hard to know what it is actually describing the number and what's actually being uh, symbolic. Like forty, the number forty years is a generation. Once you get to uh, the Book of Revelation, if if you don't know some of the meanings of numbers, you're going to be all over the place because. And, se- and seven is like the perfect number. So again, when it has seven in it, you gotta wonder. Yeah. yeah. Was it a perfect, yeah. perfect number? Yeah. 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 Okay, maybe we'll take uh, one or two more, Jackie. Um, I just had a question. Is there an area of study that tries to reconcile any differences between like biblical history and secular history? Like, for example, um, we talked a little bit about when things started being written down. Does that coincide with? Like people who would be studying linguistics or that area when things started being written down, or like the study of human migration. I just yeah. wondered if that was. Oh, yeah. 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 The, the, the Anything dr- that there is to study. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I wondered if, if, like, that, if there's, like, I mean, like the Book of Daniel has a bunch of issues that people have spent years trying to look at the names and those kind of things. So there's certain books where the facts are apparently different, and those there'd be a lot more study on, for sure. So I mean, is there always a good reason why there's a difference? Like, if I come across something, I was oh, this is different than what I read in the Bible. Is there always a logical reason behind it? Is that yeah? Well, I mean, you'd have to do the work. You, you have to uh, unpack that, and, and maybe you, you come to a conclusion. Maybe it's 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 still a mystery. I mean, Marty mentioned about the Exodus date, and there's there's some discrepancy between about 100 or 200 years in terms of when that actual Exodus date took place. 
One resource that's very good is um, is the uh, Biblical Archaeology Review. Yeah. B A R, and uh, it's uh, I know um, Pastor Mark he subscribes to that, and that's dealing with with all the new archaeological discoveries and how. It, it correlates to historical events in scripture. So I mean, for instance, resource. for years, biblical scholars were mocked because of the Hittites, and there was no record of the Hittites ever in the history of humanity, and then they found the record of the Hittites, right? So that doesn't happen all the time, but sometimes that'll happen where, you know, scholars were saying, there's no Hittites, and then all of a sudden they uncover this whole civilization, right? In Joshua, a lot of the times, and like after a battle they'll build something and it says like in 829 at the end and they raised a large pile of rocks over it which remains to this day why did they yeah. add the to this day and is it actually still there yeah yeah that would be like when that was written then there would still have been the pile of stones there so it was something you could refer to for instance if you think of the story of Jacob wrestling with the angel, it says, you know, for this reason, Hebrews no longer eat the hip or whatever, right? That would have been a tradition at the time. So they're referring to things that the people who were reading it wouldn't have known. Yeah. If anything, I think that gives it a ring of truth yeah. as well, because the person's so confident in it saying, hey, you can go check it out yourself. Yeah. And they'll just underline what I'm telling you is true. Yeah. Joshua thought to be written hundreds of years, some hundreds of years after it the actual events took place. Yeah, I don't know specific history. There's no known author. No, no, none of the Old Testament books have known authors. They're all anonymous. Who do you think wrote the creation story? Because there was nobody there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the creation story is important. Like, I think that Moses was was behind it. Yeah. And the story of creation is important because. You're, once again, with understanding the story of creation within the context of the ancient Near East, in the ancient Near East, the understanding of, of gods and their power was that gods were localized. And so if you lived in Coquitlam, we would be under the jurisdiction and the power of the god of Coquitlam. We go to Poco, it's a whole new god. you get the god of Poco over there. And so what is being communicated to Israel as they enter into the Promised Land is that the God that they worship, the God that goes before them, the God that delivered them from Egypt, is not the God whose power will suddenly disappear when you enter the promised land, but he is the maker of heaven and earth. He is the creator of all things. So even that has to be understood within the context of what's going on. Well, thank you so much for spending the day with us. And uh, yeah, we'll have more events like this in the future. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.